All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. You are worthy of all of our praise, all of the glory, all of the honor. Lord, you tell us to love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. And so this morning, we present ourselves to you, Lord. We give you our all. We say, here we are, Lord, send us. We pray, Lord, that you would put a fire in our heart, a passion that burns for you, Lord, you and you alone. We pray this morning as we get into your word, we pray that your word would accomplish all of its purposes in our souls. We pray that we would be receptive to the word of God. We pray, Lord, that your word would transform us. We pray, Lord, that your word would minister to each and every individual here in a specific and individual and personal way. And so, Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. Amen. Can you say hello to someone before you sit down? All right, come on in, everybody. If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 9. And uh, while we're turning there, we have a few announcements for you this morning. Uh, Number one, the Christmas party is coming up, and now that we're past Thanksgiving, me personally, now I start thinking about... Christmas. So I know some of you have been thinking about Christmas uh, for two months, but I like to wait until after Thanksgiving. So now full force into celebrating the birth of Christ. And uh, so we're going to have our Christmas party here at the fellowship. It's a Sunday. It's uh, 4 p.m. And uh, all are welcome and including family and friends and um, there are signups today in the foyer for you, and we just kind of want to get an idea of what to prepare for. So if you can let us know that you're coming, there's a sign-up in the foyer for that. So that's coming up. Also, uh, December 21st, which is a Thursday, if you want to mark your calendars for that, we will be meeting here in the church at 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. for our corporate church prayer. And I mentioned last week, as we begin to do this every third Thursday of the month, this is like the engine of the church. And so I encourage you to come out and just pray. That's what we need, prayer. So December 21st is that. There is a holiday schedule in your bulletin for you to look at. Uh, Things are just a little different on some of the days. Christmas falls on Monday this year. So on Christmas Eve, we're going to have our Christmas Eve service on Sunday morning at the regular time. And then at the end of that service, so we're going to have Children's Church that day, but at the end of that service, we're going to bring the kids in and we're going to have our uh, candlelight uh, celebration for that. So that's um, going to be Christmas Eve in the morning. So we're just going to have that morning service for that. And then uh, in regards to that, the kids are going to have a gingerbread um, making 
festival next or this coming Saturday. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, this Saturday. There's information about that for your kiddos out in the atrium this morning. Okay, so if we can turn our attention to the book of Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at the section of scripture that covers verses 51 through 62, and I want to start off by reading verse 62 to see where we're headed with this. Jesus says, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So this is what Jesus is explaining. This is what Jesus is describing. It's a message about what it looks like for one to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? A lot of times we throw that term around, but being a Christian means that you're saved. It means that you have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that your sins have been forgiven. It means that you become a new creation in Christ, that you've come alive Spiritually, It means that you've died to your old self and you've come alive to your new life in Christ, that you are a new creation in Christ. And how does that happen? That happens the moment one genuinely puts their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It takes place in the instant that one shifts their trust in anything other than Jesus, and they shift it to Jesus, and they say, Lord Jesus, I believe, and not only do I just believe that you are and that you exist, but now I'm putting my trust in you. And when one does that, there is something that happens that the Bible describes as being born again. It describes as being a new creation in Christ. It's described as being a child of God This is one that's going to heaven. These are the only ones that go to heaven. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In Ephesians 2.8, it says, By grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. So to understand what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian, is to understand that it is what Christ does for us, not what we do for Him. And when that happens, there is a cosmic shift where one goes from being a citizen of the earth to a citizen of heaven. They are now those who belong to the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of earth. And the Bible describes those differences in a very clear way, not a vague way, not a fuzzy way, not a foggy way, but it makes a very clear distinction, kind of like the difference between cutting a piece of paper with scissors or tearing a piece of paper. It's very clear. We, as humans and the church, 
are the ones that can blur those lines, but the Bible does not blur those lines. It makes it very clear. You're either a resident of the kingdom of heaven or resident of the kingdom of earth. You cannot have both. You cannot straddle the fence of both. You either belong to one or the other. And in our text, Jesus describes what that looks like. He describes what one who belongs to the kingdom of heaven is like. That word he uses in verse 62, fit. Fit for the kingdom of God. That word means well-placed, appropriate. It's sort of like that perfect piece of the puzzle that fits right in, that it can't be forced because it doesn't belong, but yet it's very clear. And this is what Jesus does. He describes for us what one who is fit or appropriate or the right piece of the puzzle, what they're like. And again, like a puzzle, it's very defined, the, the borders, it's not soft and malleable, it's very distinct and very clear, clear-cut, if you will. So what we look at this morning, it may be a warning for some of you, it may be an encouragement for others, it may give some assurance, and it may sort of cause an imbalance or a distress for others, but the point is that we are very clear, as Jesus is, about what it looks like for one who is a part of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to look at three things that Jesus himself says. And why is that important? It's because we're not given the liberty in the Bible to make our own religion or to make Jesus fit our lifestyle or have a Jesus that we kind of like better, that works with what we want to do. We're not given that option in the Bible, and yet so many do that, making really the violation of the Ten Commandments where we make God into our own image. And so what does the Bible say about the kingdom of God? And how clear is that? And how important is it for us to know that? So four things we're going to look at. The number one is committed. Number two is canceled. Number three is changed. And number four is cost. And so let's take a look at verse 51. As we step into this scene of Jesus with his disciples, but not only his disciples, a large group of followers as he's traveling around ministering to people. So now it says in verse 51, it says, It came to pass that when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face 
to go to Jerusalem. So here we see something happening, sort of a change in the narrative of the book of Luke. So far in the book of Luke, we've been looking at Jesus' coming. The prophecies of him coming, the Holy Spirit filling John the Baptist and speaking to Elizabeth before his coming and the, the, the wise men and the prophecies of the angels in the sky telling the shepherds in the field about this Messiah, that he's here, he's born, he's in the place where the Bible said he was born and his, his coming, this focus on his coming, and the focus on his coming then shifted to the, the doing, where we saw Jesus do the miracles and demonstrate who he was and explain the miracles. And those miracles were such where they pointed to the reality of him being the Messiah, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. But now it says the time has come. Why does it say that? It's because our steps are ordered by the Lord. And God is into timing. And God has a schedule. And God is working out that schedule. And our job is to get on board of the plan of his schedule. To board the train that's going in the good works of God. He's already got it mapped out. And in the life of Jesus, it says, now there was a time. This was the time for something to change, where the narrative would shift from his coming to his doing. Now it's to his going. And that's why it says it, it come time for him to be received up. And what does that mean? It, it was time for him to go through the process of being betrayed and crucified and buried and risen from the dead and then ascending into heaven as he conquered death and made the way possible for all who believe in what he did as a sacrifice for our sins to be saved. Now was the time for him to do that. And yet there was a lot of opposition even from his own party, his own group, his own 12. Not only from his own 12, his own three. But Jesus was committed. And this is a mark of one who is fit for the kingdom of God. They have come to a place where they are committed to Jesus Christ where they have decided of their own will that they will now live for the purposes of God. And this is what Jesus is doing here, knowing what was ahead of him. The time of him to be received up, the time for him to perform what he came to do was upon him. And how did he handle that? Instead of retreating or instead of listening to his disciples who said, you don't need to do that. Even Satan in the beginning of his ministry 
would tempt him to say, you don't have to go that way. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to be killed. Just don't do that. The temptation from Satan was, you can have everything. But Jesus demonstrating the fact that he was committed to the plan and the purposes of God the Father as he is God the Son. And he wasn't going, going to be deterred from what God had called him to do. And so it says, because of that, he steadfastly, because of the time, because this is why he came, he handled his situation by facing it. This word, steadfastly, it means to make stable, to set fast, to fix, to strengthen, to make firm. It means to confirm in your mind. He was not double-minded. He was not wishy-washy. But he knew who he was, and he knew why he came. And because of that, he embraced the steps that God the Father had ordered for him instead of running from them. He saw this as his purpose and his calling, not as a deterrent to his self-will and his comfort because he was selfless and did not live for himself. He lived to be about the Father's business. And herein we find this amazing truth, that a true believer is one that has made a clear and distinct decision to follow Jesus. Not a wishy-washy decision, a vague decision, not one where I'm going to, Follow him and ten other things. But a true follower or disciple of Jesus Christ or a Christian for that matter, one who's saved, is one who clearly and distinctly has made a decision to say, for me to live is Christ. And that's it. Now, we don't do that perfectly. We don't avoid falling and stumbling and getting off track. But be very clear. What we're seeing here and what we are having described to us is there has to be a very clear, distinct decision that one makes to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. In other words, that their life is now His. In his hands. It's no longer one's own life. Now we can see from that very clearly, just from the initial explanation of what it means to be a Christian, we can see how the broad road of destruction is actually filled with many people who go to church. Many people who love to hear self-affirmations and self-fulfilling platitudes, and flowery words, and fun speeches, and TED Talks that tickle the ears, but the Bible is very clear. We have to be careful about that. Because there can be a cultural Christianity that's not a biblical Christianity. And if it's a cultural Christianity, meaning a Christianity that's defined by what the culture wants, 
we can be pretty sure that's not a biblical Christianity. That's a man-made religion. And so point number one about being fit for the kingdom of God, it's one who is committed to Jesus. It's one who lives for his purposes. And then number two, point number two. As the story continues, it says, and messengers were sent. So remember, Jesus is on the move. And now he's headed towards Jerusalem. Why is he headed towards Jerusalem? Well, a lot lot of his ministry, almost all of his ministry at this time had been around the Sea of Galilee. That's not Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, where he was going to do specifically what he was called to do in being the Savior of the world. So now the time has been set, and now he is in the direction and going in the direction of Jerusalem, and what awaits him in Jerusalem is his arrest, betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So he's going there. He's not double-minded. He knows that's why he has come. He has fixed his eyes to go do what he is called to do. And as he's on his way, remember he has a large group of people traveling with him. So yes, his disciples, but also a larger group of people that would be called disciples because they wanted to learn from him, but had not committed their lives to him. And so on his way, he would send messengers before him. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. So this group of disciples, if you will, so they went before and they were telling the Samaritans, look, Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he's going to preach the kingdom of God to you. Jesus had already had some encounters with the Samaritans, particularly in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. But yet, the Samaritans and the Jews were arch enemies. This would be comparable sort of as uh, Jews sauntering into Gaza before the war. You just didn't do that. Or Jews casually going to the West Bank to dine and have a date night. You just don't do that. There is a strong hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. The history of the Samaritans goes all the way back to the first conquest of the divided nation of Israel, which was divided into north and south. The Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and the ten tribes. But they allowed some of the Jews to stay there. And those who were loyal to the king of Assyria, they began to marry and have kids with the Jews. And what this created was these people called the Samaritans. They had their own religion. They were half Jews and half pagan. They had their own temple of worship at Mount Gerizim. And so these distinctions caused them to greatly hate the Jews. And 
Isn't it perfect that Jesus sends people to go there? Go there. Go to these people. Go to the hardest place, the hardest ground. Go to the place where you have the most potential to be hurt, to be killed, to be injured. Go to that place, and that was not far-fetched. So in verse 53, no surprise, it says, they, the Samaritans, did not receive them. And it tells us the reason. Because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So the overall hatred of the Samaritans to the Jews, which Jesus was the Jew, then couple that with now he's fulfilling the mission that God had called him to fulfill, and that's going to happen in Jerusalem, the place of Judaism, the place where the temple was. And so when the messengers came and explained what, that Jesus was going to be coming through and he's going to be preaching the gospel, they said, no way. Don't have him come here. We don't want him here. Forget about it. Go somewhere else. We don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And so point number two in regards to being a true disciple of Jesus Christ or just being a Christian is the fact that we will be canceled. Just using a popular term of the day. A true believer living for the purposes of God. One who has convictions, they will be canceled. This is part of and a defining characteristic of a true believer. And notice it's not because a believer is acting rudely or inappropriately or forcefully or aggressively or obnoxiously, which are things that one could be persecuted for if you want to use that word, but this is not what is being talked about. This does not give you a license to be a jerk, to be weird. You cannot say I'm being persecuted if you're acting in a way where you should be persecuted. <laughs> this is, and think about this. Jesus was a peacemaker. He even said that blessed are the what? Peacemakers. But yet around him was complete chaos. Even within his little group of 12, there was chaos. Even in his group of three, there was fighting. So how is that that Jesus is a peacemaker? How is it that Jesus, when he came, he came loving. He came helping. He came with compassion. And he did that more than any other person that's ever walked the planet. But yet, there is complete chaos around him. There is violence. There is persecution. There is threats. And it's because of what we see here. There was a specific thing that was happening that was beyond 
the prejudice, racial, ethnic divisions and hatred. It was because he was fulfilling the calling that God had on his life. Did you know? If you are going to walk in such a way where you are not going to compromise, but you are going to live according to the calling that God has on your life, you will be hated. You will be persecuted. And you could be the most tender, soft-hearted, loving, kind, gentle, giving person, and yet you will be hated. Jesus even warned, he said, they, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. In Matthew 5.10, it says, Blessed are those who, pers- or those who are persecuted. It says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. And it says, Falsely. People will lie about you. People will take something you say and make it means something that you didn't mean. And it says, for my sake. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, he says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He gives us an example. And he says, hey, look at what happened to the prophets. Look at the persecution that they suffered. Look what they went through. That's that's a normal part of it. It's a normal characteristic of a follower of Jesus Christ, that there will be venom. There will be anger. There will be volatility. There will be shaming. There will be disowning. There will be all of those things are are part of the, the package. And not... It shouldn't be anything that we do to, to cause that to happen, but it be, should be simply because of our convictions to walk with Jesus. In John 16, 33, it says, In me, in Jesus, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And how about this one? Luke 6, 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. So what are we to make of this? Why was Jesus the most loving, caring, gentle, helping person that's ever walked the planet treated so bad? It's because the world system hates Jesus because Satan is in charge of the world system. When people are living for themselves or this world, they will automatically hate one who lives for Christ. Jesus, we are told, was hated by the religious Jews because of their envy of him. The Romans hated him because of his threat that they were afraid of. And so point number two that we have to understand is that walking with Jesus will 
bring about hatred of others. Point number three. In verse 54, it says, When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? So James and John, we are told in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, are called the sons of thunder. And this is why. And it's not that far-fetched to, to see what they were thinking in our time because there is much violence that is committed in the name of religion. That's what we're seeing in the Middle East right now. That's why there's no solution to religious violence unless that religiously violent person converts to Christianity. Because in Christianity, there's no place for violence. There's no place to bring thunder down from heaven if someone doesn't agree with you. It's not so in other religions. It's not so. And so they're, they're thinking, hey, look, these Samaritans, this is our opportunity. They're coming against Jesus. The Romans, they're conquering us. They're killing us when we don't agree with them and Caesar and their worship. So why don't we just kill them? Elijah did it. Probably saying, remember when the pagan king was sending 50 guys to Elijah and Elijah just vaporized them? That was awesome. Can we do that? They were thinking like people in the world think. They were thinking like we think sometimes. And someone crosses us or we have just such anger built up in, in us. But Jesus says, as he turned and rebuked them, he says, you, don't, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. In other words, he's saying, this is not of the kingdom of heaven to act like this. This is not of the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that there is judgment, but judgment belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us, but there will be judgment. And it doesn't belong to us. And he's saying your attitude, the way you're thinking, get this. They were probably thinking they were doing a godly thing. Did you know that there are people committing atrocities violently, slaughtering people in the name of God, and they think they're doing an honor to God? Isn't that interesting? But even the disciples thought that because that's just kind of how the world works. You mess with me, I'll mess with you more. You mess with me back a little bit more and I'll mess, you, mess with you back even more than that. It just keeps going on and on and on. And Jesus rebukes them and he said, that's a different spirit. What you're talking about is something else. There's no justification for religious wars. Why? It says in verse 56, 
For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought, if I commit my life to Jesus, my life is going to be all messed up. If I really start following Jesus, I, I want to go to heaven, but if I start having convictions, my life is just going to be messed up. Is that really what Jesus wants to do? Just mess your life up? Did Jesus come and say, hey, Trinity, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, let's just mess with these people. When they give their life to us, let's just mess them up. Let's just wreck everything in their life. You know who says that? Satan says that. He comes to destroy. But Jesus says that I didn't come to do that, but to what? To save them. I came to save them. This is why Jesus came. He came to save us. This, this is the purpose. Jesus knew who he was and he knew why he came and was living completely according to the plan and purposes that God the Father had laid out for him. In a way, that makes life very simple. We just do what God has called us to do. We just walk in obedience to the Lord. doesn't mean it's easy. It just means it's simple. It's well-defined. When we are Christians, we just live for God. And we trust him with what may happen because we do that. We trust him with the results. But the results are not our business. Our business is just to walk with God. And walking with God means that we too, like Jesus, are not double-minded about why we're here, but we're single-minded in the fact that if Jesus came to save, then he has given us the message of salvation, then that's why we're here to bring that message of salvation. That's why believers, Christians, that's why we exist. It's about this message of salvation. To save those who are lost. And the Bible tells us the fields are white, or in other words, they're ready. Go into the fields, but it says the laborers are few. Why is it the laborers are few? Maybe because a wrong understanding of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be saved. Maybe we have adopted a more cultural understanding of what it means to be a Christian, which is unbiblical, instead of a biblical understanding of what it means to be a Christian, which is true and right. And so the last thing we find in verse 57. So being the right puzzle piece that fits right in to be one who is of the kingdom of God is one who has distinctly committed their life to him in a way where they live for his purposes. It's one who will find that because of their convictions and love for Christ, they will often be canceled by other people. These are people that have changed to where 
We used to live for ourselves and control and power and dominance and those sort of things. And now we don't live that way anymore, but we live in a way where we've been changed and we want other people to know the love of Christ that can also set them free. Now, in all of that, there is a cost. It's interesting that Jesus here actually talks people out of being a, becoming a Christian. That is something very different than we often see and hear today, where any slight movement to Christ, the church wants to stand up and say, look at this person, they just received Christ. And two weeks later, they're like one of those seeds where the thorns, the cares and concerns of the world got to them and they're, they're no more. Jesus doesn't try to talk people into being saved. We are not doing God a favor like we often think when we get saved or say a prayer. Jesus actually wants us to know what we're getting into before we get into it. He actually wants us to consider, hey, this is what it means. Don't even call yourself a Christian unless you understand what you're saying. Don't throw that term around loosely. And don't make the narrow road that leads to heaven broader because of your incorrect interpretations of it. So watch what happens. Now they're on the move again, right? A group of people following Jesus. He's going to Jerusalem. So it says it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone, someone out of the crowd said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. This person we find out in Matthew's account, was a, a scribe. In other words, a Jewish religious scholar. And also, one, many of the scribes were Pharisees too, who would get a lot of brownie points by their outward profession of holiness. So they wanted everybody to see how good they were. They wanted everybody to think that they were high and mighty religiously, that they were holy religiously. And so it makes sense that he would make a public display of this. But I also want you to notice in the last section that we have here, the word follow is used three times. And I think that's a, a very good way to understand what it means to be a true Christian, to what it means to have been fitted by God for the kingdom of heaven, a good description of that might be a follower. We see that here. This is what Jesus is saying, that one who is in the kingdom of God is someone who's following him. How do you follow someone? If I'm going that way, how would you follow me? Would you go that way if you're following me? Would you go that way? Would you go that? No, you would go that way. What's that way? That way is what we find in the Bible. It tells us what the way is. Now, what would you think if someone said, yeah, I'm following Jesus, but I'm going that way. 
Well, why are you going that way? Well, I just feel it more that way. And I have these goals over here and the ambitions over here. This is kind of what I like. But that's not where Jesus is going. That's okay. He loves me. And I'm a Christian, but I'm going that way. Well, Jesus says, if you want to follow him, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. What about that part? Jesus is going over here. That's okay. I'm just going to keep going over here. I have things set. I, maybe I'll get to that one day. What will we say? You're not following him. You're doing your own thing. That's what you're doing. You're not following him. Yeah, but I'm a Christian, but you're not following him. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Well, that's okay, because I go to a church and they tell me that, you know, God has this broad love for everybody. And that you don't have to repent of your sins or you don't have to give your life to him or anything. Just say you're a Christian and you're good, even though you're going that way. And then somebody else sitting next to you said, well, I'm going that way. Well, the Bible says to repent of your sins. And go that way. Well, God's a God of love. And he loves me going to hell that way. No, he doesn't. He loves you so much, he died so you don't have to go that way. That's the whole point. He's going that way. That's heaven. So stop saying you're a Christian if you're not following him. Does anybody follow him perfectly? No. Are we perfect? No. But is there a direction, a general direction of our life to the true, authentic Christian? Yes. And so this guy yells out, hey, I'll, wherever you go, Jesus, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So that was person number one. I'll follow you wherever you go. Well, do you know what that means? Look at me, Jesus would say. This world is not my home. I'm not living for this world. I don't even have a house. Now, that, does it mean if you have a house, you're going to hell? No. It doesn't mean that, but get the point of this. If there's something in the world that you're unwilling to give to the Lord, then you're really not following him. If there's something more important to you, that's what the Bible calls an idol. If there's something that you love more than God. If there's something in your heart that has some qualification for following Jesus. In other words, I'll, I'll follow him, but if this happens, or I don't want to do this, or I don't want to do that, then we're putting qualifications for our following of Jesus. And you know what that does? It, it suggests that, that we know better than God of the universe. That seems like blasphemy. But then another guy. Jesus then says to another guy, so Jesus initiates this in verse 59, and Jesus says, follow me, second time. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means we're following Jesus. That's the clear distinction. 
That's where we avoid the fogginess, the tear of the paper, which has no distinct clear-cut lines. This is it. A true believer, Jesus himself, is telling us, if you're not following him, you're not fit. You're not part of the kingdom of God. This is what he's saying. This is what it looks like. Follow me. I'm going this way. Come with me. Amos 3.3 says, unless two are in agreement, they can't walk together. And notice what this guy says. But, there's the but. Circle that. That's the excuse. That's a qualification. That's the, I'm going to still do my own thing. I'm going to reserve part of my life for you not to touch so I can do my thing. That's not following Jesus. But he says, Lord, which means master, controller, supreme boss. Notice this. Let me what? Circle that first. Let me first. I'll follow you, but let me first. Let me go do something first. What does that suggest? There's something more important. He's not living for the purposes of Jesus. He's living for the purposes of what he wants. But, excuse, first priority, let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead but you go preach the kingdom of God. What was he saying there? His dad wasn't dead yet. How do we know that? Because if his dad was dead, he would be gone already and not traveling with Jesus because they only let the dead bodies be around for a day because they didn't have the proper or like the anointing and proper care of the dead body like we do his dad wasn't dead what he's saying is i'll get to it sometime what he's saying is i have priorities that i see it might be important to follow you but i don't want to give up on some of these other things probably he was talking about his inheritance that he wanted to wait till his dad died so he can get a lot of money or whatever amount of money, because he knew following Jesus meant he wouldn't have a place to lay his head. So let me wait till my dad dies, then I'll at least have a place to stay when I follow you. And then the third. I'm running a little late. Three minutes. Please forgive me. The last, last encounter. Another said, Lord, I will follow you. But first, see that? But, qualification, a condition. We can't follow Jesus with conditions. First, then there's a priority. There's something more important here. But first, go and bid farewell who are at my house. In other words, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's going there. 
If you want to come along, he wants you to come along, but understand what it means. There's no false understanding here. There's no culturally created, cool, just put a Christian thing over label and say I'm a Christian and don't follow him. He's saying, look, you're all in or you're not in. And this person says, but first again, and he wants to go say bye at his house. And that sounds nice, but what he's saying is, let me go back to my family and see what they think. Goes back to the family. So I'm like, oh, what are you, crazy? You could be a Christian still. You don't have to follow him. What are you talking about? Don't surrender. Don't give anything. Do you realize what you can earn in this job? Or do you realize how great your life can be? Don't do that. So Jesus says, no one, that's very clear, right? Having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, it doesn't work like this. I'll kind of follow Jesus. I'll check a few things out. I'll interact a little bit, but I got my stuff I got my things, I got my life, don't mess with those things. And Jesus says, no one like that is fit for the kingdom of God. The one who is fit for the kingdom of God, he's saying, is the one that has made a decision, understanding what it may mean, and they set their sights in the direction of Jesus, and they go that way, and whatever may come, may come. But a true believer in Jesus Christ continues to follow Jesus. Not sometimes, not when things go the way we want, not when things look the way we want, but we keep going because He is God and He is the Savior. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And so to be fit for the kingdom, means that we are committed to him and his purposes. We will be canceled. Our life will be changed to where we love the gospel and sharing the gospel. And there is an understanding that there will be a cost involved, but we don't let that stop us from following Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I know there's a lot to consider here for us this morning, but I'm happy, Lord, to know that these are not my words or my opinions, and I don't want myself my own opinions or my own thoughts. I want what you say, and I know the words here this morning can cut to the heart, but they're true, and Lord, when you cut, you cut to heal. You cut out what is bad. You cut out the cancers so that we can have life and that more abundantly. And so, Lord, I pray that this message would be received by all here and all listening online, that we'd simply be honest with ourselves because your word is true and what you say will come to pass. 
And so may each one of us here this morning knowingly commit our life to you. First and foremost, receiving you as our Lord and Savior. And then, Lord, may you lead and direct our lives. If anybody is here and is not a Christian, I defined that earlier, is not saved, is not going to heaven, is not having their names written in the Lamb's book of life, according to what Jesus says, and I, I just beg of you now just to make it very clear, to cry out to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. And now, Lord, please, I put my trust in you and you alone. Do that now from your heart and allow God to lead and direct your lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. And if anybody this morning would like prayer, our prayer team will be up front for you. God bless you, and let's worship the Lord now.